Good afternoon, Sovereign Grace Church Pasadena. If you can please make your way back to your seats. We're going to spend some time together in God's Word. I want you to know it is such a gift to worship with you. It's a gift to be here each Sunday worshiping with you. Uh, It ministers to my soul, so thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Tim Owens. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church. And if you are just joining us for the first time this summer, we're in the middle of a series preaching through Psalm 119. As we said last week, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's an acrostic poem, and so it's a much different genre Uh, than the historical narrative we were preaching through in Ezra and Nehemiah for the last several months. Uh, So we need to orient ourselves to a new genre. The Psalms are poetry, they are songs, and Psalm 119 is a particularly detailed and structured poem. There are 22 stanzas in Psalm 119, and each stanza corresponds to one of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The major theme of this chapter is God's word, but but this is not merely information about God's word. This is is not a lecture. As a matter of fact, Psalm 119 is, is intensely personal. First and foremost, Psalm 119 is a prayer. It's a it's a personal conversation between the author and God in which the author is going to apply God's word to every area of his heart and life. He's not going to hold anything back. The hard spots, the dark spots, the places where he's afraid, he's going to be honest about all of it. But he's going to apply God's word to it. And I I think Psalm 119 can help us to do the same thing. So today, we're going to be in the ninth stanza. That's verses 65 through 72. So let's read it together, and then we'll pray and begin. That's Psalm 119 and beginning in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is our desire, it is our request that you would send the Holy Spirit among us right now to do in our hearts what we see here in verse 72, that the law of your mouth, that your word would become more valuable to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Father, that is a miracle. Only you can accomplish it in us. Please prepare our hearts to receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently read a story about a pastor whose name is Dieter Xander. Um, and this is not a lighthearted story, but I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful story, and it's given me hope, and I want to share it with you. I hope that it'll do the same for you. Uh, just to give you some background, Dieter was something of a mini-celebrity in the evangelical Christian world back in the 90s and early O's. Uh, he was a pastor, a, a preacher, and worship leader at Willow Creek Church, Uh, just outside of Chicago. And as many of you know, Willow Creek enjoyed enormous influence and popularity, Um, not always for for great reasons, but it's a very big church. 
uh, and Dieter was one of the key leaders at that church. But in 2008, he had a stroke, and the stroke left him severely debilitated. He lost his ability to play music. He lost his ability to speak in front of people. Uh, completely changed his life. And I want to read you uh, a section of his story. Just follow along with me on the screen. He used to work on a stage before thousands of people who applauded his every move. Now he works in a windowless room in the back of a Trader Joe's grocery store. He breaks down boxes. When fruit is bruised, if a pear falls on the floor, when any product is no longer regarded as perfect, it is brought to Dieter. From him, it will go to feed the hungry, who do not care if their apple is lopsided. Dieter once wrote in a letter, it is good that I work there. I am like that fruit. I am imperfect. Inside, I'm the same person, the same sense of humor, the same thoughts, but my words betray me. What should take three minutes to say is an hour of frustration. People lose patience with me. Aphasia means aloneness. But God hears me. My world is small and quiet and slow and simple. No stage, no performance, more real. Good. A year or so after Dieter's stroke, he and his wife Val visited me. He used a small whiteboard to help him communicate. Toward the end of our time together, he began to write a Bible verse, John 21, 18. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Then below that verse, Dieter wrote, Good. How can he write good? What gives him a perspective to go through something like that and call it good? Of course, we know that John 21, 18, that, that's Jesus talking, and he's prophesying how Peter's going to die, that Peter's going to die on a cross. He's going to be crucified just like Jesus was, spread out his hands. But we can imagine how a man like Dieter would read that verse and would see himself reflected in it. When you are young, you dress yourself. You go where you want to go. But when you are old, and there are many, many that that verse could come to have a, a kind of beauty for. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate when someone walks through suffering with courage and dignity. C courage, it, it's, it's an attractive thing. Courage looks good to all of us. You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate that. But to come through suffering and to call it good, that's something else entirely. I want to submit that that is uniquely Christian, that no other philosophy, no other religion, no other belief system, nothing else can give you a paradigm within which you can call suffering good. And good is the word that the biblical authors seem to gravitate towards when they want to communicate about God's power to redeem and use the suffering in our lives. Maybe some verses are coming to your mind. In Genesis 37 through 50, we have the story of Joseph. Joseph is betrayed by his own brothers. He's sold into slavery. Then when he gets to Egypt, he's as a slave. He's working as a slave. He's wrongfully accused of sexual misconduct. He's thrown into prison for several years. Now, Joseph had unusual perseverance. He had unusual perspective and poise while he was walking through those horrible things. And at the end of his life, he tells his brothers, where did that poise come from? And this is what he says, perhaps the most famous verse in Genesis, besides Genesis 1.1. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's that word again. I, I don't want people to use the word good when they go through things like that, I don't want to have to think that I might have to go through something like that and learn how it's, it's good. I would rather think that good is just easy. 
But God was able to turn suffering to good in Joseph's life. And perhaps the most famous statement of this principle in the whole Bible is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why does Paul need to tell us that all things work together for good? He's not talking about the periods in our life where everything's as it should be. We don't need to stop and think whether God works that stuff for good. We already feel it. It feels good. No, Paul is telling us, he's giving us that principle in Romans because he wants to know that even when things look and feel bad, God can work it for good. That God, in fact, is working it for good if you are in Christ. The main theme of our text today is goodness. The Hebrew word for good appears six times in our text. And in Hebrew poetry, the author oftentimes moves the most important word or concept to the beginning of the sentence, even when doing so makes the grammar or syntax of the sentence a little bit more difficult to understand. The author wants to make sure that we get the main point, so it puts it right at the beginning of the sentence. In the ninth stanza of Psalm 119, the word good is the first word in five out of eight verses. So it's clear the psalmist wanted this stanza to be about God's goodness. But we're going to see something as we start to move through this text. The psalmist's ideas about God's goodness are much different than what we typically think about when we think of God's goodness. The author sees God's goodness, particularly in seasons of difficulty and trial. He defines goodness differently than we do. Our text gives us two main points today. Point number one, redefining goodness in verses 65 to 68. And point number two, the heart fully alive, verses 69 to 72. The first half of this stanza, the first four verses, 65 to 68, the psalmist is going to describe God's goodness. And then in the second half of the stanza, verses 69 to 72, he's going to tell us how he came experientially to love God's goodness, to taste God's goodness, to experience God's goodness. Let's take a look at point number one, redefining goodness. Look with me at verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Now, in English, the first word is you, but the translators are rearranging the words in this sentence to make it easier to read, easier to understand. In Hebrew, the first word is good. Uh, A literal translation might read this way. Good you have done to your servant, Yahweh, according to your word. So, This is a simple idea. The author begins this stanza of Psalm 119 by saying, you've been good to me, Lord. All right, I'm ready to read the rest of this stanza. This is a stanza about goodness. You've been good to me, Lord. This reminds me of David in Psalm 16:6, saying, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You've been good to me, God. This line sets the tone for the rest of the stanza, which is essentially a poem expressing gratitude to God for his goodness. But notice the second half of the verse. According to your word. You've done good to me, God. You've been good to me. According to your word. So right off the bat, the author starts defining goodness. Narrowing the scope. Pointing us to what is this goodness that he's talking about? The goodness the author is experiencing, it it has a certain content. It comes to us a certain way. It's defined by God's word, and it comes to us as we walk in accordance with God's word. We might put it this way. We might say God's goodness is mediated to us by God's word. And that has certain implications for us, does it not? If goodness comes to us through a word, that has implications for us. And the author starts to explore those implications in the very next verse. Look at verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. So the first thing he asked God is to teach him. The author wants to become God's student. If goodness comes through us through, comes to us through a word, that is through a book, then we have to become students of that book. 
We, we, have to, we have to read it, and we have to study it, and we have to become teachable. We have to ask God to reveal what he's written here. What's more, I, I wonder if you notice that he asked God to teach him what is good. Teach me good judgment. Teach me what is good. That's significant because most of us assume that we already know what is good. The problem we face in our lives is how to get it. You don't need to tell me what is good. We all know what is good. We're just all fighting for it. We're all out there trying to get what is good, trying to figure out how to get it to me. But that's, that's not what's happening here in this psalm. By God's grace, the psalmist sees that sin has clouded his judgment. Before he can even seek what is good, he needs God to define goodness for him. He needs God to come and clear, clarify what actually is good for me. Because if God doesn't define what is good, we'll spend all of our time wasting our energy running in a thousand different directions after things that in the end may not actually be good for us. So we need God to teach us what is good. Just as an aside, this gives us a motivation to study our Bible that has nothing to do with legalism. Okay, Psalm 119 doesn't say, you better read your Bible or else... You better be a student of your Bible or you're in big trouble, mister. No, Psalm 119 says God's goodness comes to you through his word. When you you experience that, that's going to change your perspective on your quiet time. So the first thing we notice in verse 66 is the psalmist wants to be a student of God's word. He's asking God to teach him good judgment. But second... The psalmist is not only after head knowledge. The, the word that he uses for judgment here, the literal translation is taste. So he's saying, he's saying, give me good taste. Look at the rest of verse 66. For I believe in your commandments. Give me good taste and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. So the logic here is, I believe that your commandments are true, but I want to go further I want to go further than just mental assent that your commandments are true. I want to taste it. I want to feel it. I want to walk in the good of it. I want to learn to relish and enjoy that which is actually good for me. This verse connects us to a a wonderful truth about God's goodness. It's something that we can experience. It's not something that we just know in our head. It's tangible. It tastes good, like good food. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We can taste it. Isaiah 55, 2 connects this taste directly to God's word when it says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Do you hear God's words behind that? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Friends, there's a banquet spread for you in God's word. It's food for your soul. We have a capacity to taste it and see it. There's a promise here that if, if we trust it, we will act on it. There's a promise that says if we listen diligently to God's word, if we study God's word, if we learn to walk in the ways of God's word, then our souls will be delighted. They'll be delighted, not, not, just, not just satisfied with like bread and water. Our souls will be delighted like the richest affair, like a rich feast for our soul. Your soul can be satisfied. The psalmist knows where that satisfaction comes from. So to summarize, God's goodness is mediated to us through his word. So we want to become students of his word. We want to read, study, pray, ask God to reveal to us what's happening in his word. We want to taste it. Now this all seems really straightforward and understandable. Good. We're in a, we're in a stanza about God's goodness. And the way we find God's goodness is we study our Bible better. And then we get to verse 67. And the psalmist shifts gears. Let's read verse 67 together. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
At first glance, it's difficult to see how verse 67 even fits in the context of this stanza. It seems, doesn't it seem incongruent to speak about affliction in a poem about God's goodness? If you sat down to write a poem about God's goodness, would you think, you know, I have to include affliction. That's an idea I really got to get into my poem about God's goodness, suffering. But that's what was on this psalmist's mind. And this is intentional. The the, the psalmist wants us to know that the difficulties we face are not incongruent with God's goodness. And they're not unrelated to the process of learning to walk in God's ways so that we can experience God's goodness. In fact, clearly his testimony is that the suffering he faced accomplished something in him. And it's something he had been asking for. Notice that verse 67 is bracketed by verse 66 and 68. But 66 and 68, they both have the same prayer. What is it? He's been praying for something. What's he been praying for? 66, teach me good judgment. 68, teach me your statutes. He's been asking God to teach him. And we know that it's not just head knowledge, okay? Because he used the word for taste. He wants to walk in this stuff. When he says, teach me, he means, tell me how to walk in the way of your word. But verse 67 tells us how God did that. What was it that moved this from head knowledge for this man to actual walking obedience? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word There had been a gap between what he knew in his head. Verse 66 says, I I trust your commandments. See, I believe in your commandments. But before the affliction, he was going astray. There was a gap between what was in his head and, and his personal conduct. They didn't match up. But then when affliction came, something happened in his heart. And he was enabled to walk more fully in line with what he was reading and seeing and tasting in God's word. Verse 67 can transform our view of suffering, friends. It touches on an entire theology of suffering that runs all the way through Scripture. The late Tim Keller wrote a book several years ago entitled Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And I commend this book to you. He had a long, he, he, he just passed away a few weeks ago. He had a long battle with cancer. This book has captured a lot of the, the gold that he learned in his own walk with the Lord during that battle. So it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. But in it, he helps to define a perspective on suffering that I think is uniquely Christian. This is what he has to say. In the secular view, suffering is never seen as, meaning, as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. Christianity teaches that, contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. One of the major themes of Psalm 119 is suffering. It appears in almost every stanza of the chapter. In fact, one of the main themes of the book of Psalms is suffering. But the beauty and power of the Psalms is they make room for the full scope, the full range of our emotions, our response to the suffering and evil in the world, but they don't leave us in despair. The Psalms show us a God that we can trust in the midst of affliction. Now, in the second half of this stanza, the psalmist is going to go on and describe the inner dynamics. How did affliction lead him, lead to this good fruit in his life, lead to him walking more fully in line with God's word? But before we get to the second half, he's going to give us one of the most definitive statements on goodness in the entire Bible, and in some ways, the most important verse in this stanza. Let's read it carefully, verse 68. You are good. And do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and do good. This is miraculous. It's one thing to affirm God's goodness when everything is going great. 
when everything is as it should be. But he just told us this man has walked through infliction, affliction. This man has walked through suffering. It's quite a different thing to come through suffering and turn around and say, God, you are good. And you do good. This is the Bible's definition of goodness, my friends. God himself. What is the good that we find in God's word? It's God himself. The message of scripture is that God gives himself to us in Christ Jesus. And we just have to pause right there. This is not the only definition of the good that's out there in the marketplace of ideas in our world today. There is a marketplace of ideas. There are voices screaming for your attention. And underneath the layers of what those voices are saying, they are telling you a story, a version of what is good for you. Every advertisement wants you to think it is good for you to buy this thing. Every politician wants you to think it would be good for America to adopt this policy. Okay, there, there are competing visions of the good out there clamoring for your attention. The Bible defines good very specifically. There is no one who is good except God himself. God is good. This is so significant for us because apart from a fixed reference point, apart from a definitive statement outside of what I think or you think, an objective reality of goodness outside of that, the whole concept of goodness just degenerates into whatever society thinks at the time, a societal construct. Goodness is whatever the majority believes goodness is. And that puts us in a very precarious situation. But if we have a definition, a fixed point, a definition for what actually is good, now we're back on stable ground. Now we can say definitively, this is good and this is evil not because I think so, not because I feel like it, not because it's comfortable for me, but because God himself defines what is good. God is the only one who is good. This is crucial for walking through life in this postmodern world. We have a definition here in the ninth stanza of Psalm 119 of goodness. This goodness comes to us through a story. The Bible is a story about reconciliation with God. Colossians 1.21 tells us that in our sin, we are alienated from God and we are hostile towards him. But through faith in Jesus, we can be reconciled. So if God is ultimate goodness, if knowing God is ultimate goodness, the Bible, the whole, the whole scope of the story of scripture is about how do you get that good? You're alienated. In our sin, we are alienated from God, we are hostile toward him. We don't even want to be reconciled with him. The thing that is best for us, the, the thing that tastes best, that is best, goodness itself, we are barred from it. We can't taste it. We can't get close to it. We can't have it because we've broken his word. The Bible is a story about how does that good come to us? And it comes to us in a man, Jesus Christ who suffered and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the ways we have broken God's word so that he can bring us to the one who is truly good. That is how you get goodness. You want goodness in your life, then you, are, then you pursue Jesus, pursue reconciliation to God in Christ. That's how we find the good. Now, how does that relate to suffering? Suffering has a way of exposing what we really believe about life, does it not? If anything other than God is our ultimate good, then our suffering will be unbearable. But if relationship with God is your ultimate good, if that is your greatest possible good, now your perspective on suffering is totally different. Now you're able to walk through suffering without despair because no affliction in this world can take that away from you. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And in Psalm 119, it's not only 
that our relationship with God is secure in the midst of suffering. It's not just that suffering can't tamper with that relationship. It's that God actually uses, he works in and through that suffering to, bring, to help us to taste and see the goodness, to appreciate it more fully. God is actually using suffering to enhance the good that we find in Christ. The second half of the stanza, the psalmist is going to tell us, how did this happen? How, for him, how did it look for him? How did suffering cause him to appreciate the beauty of God, the goodness of God more? How can infliction enhance our experience and appreciation of goodness? That brings us to point number two, the heart fully alive. Look at verse 69. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. This is remarkable. Don't miss this. Don't read too quickly over Psalm 119. The author's testimony is that before he went through suffering, he was going astray. Before he went through suffering, he was half-hearted about God's word, which means he was half-hearted about the things that were truly good and beautiful and true, the things that tasted the best. He was half-hearted about them, okay? So when things were easy, follow along, when things were easy, he was prone to sin. But now after he walked through affliction, he's a different man. Not only is he obeying God's word, we learn that in verse 67, but now in 69, we see the quality of his obedience. He's wholeheartedly obeying in the midst of slander. People are smearing him with lies. And what's his testimony? I am wholeheartedly obeying your commands. His circumstances have not gotten any better. That's important to note. But now his heart is fully alive. Now he has the courage to obey in the face of opposition. Folks, this is what it looks like when our hearts are captured by the goodness of God. It doesn't remove the trials and challenges from our life. It prepares us to walk through them with wholehearted obedience and courage. Church family, are you living in a wholehearted way right now? I encourage you to be honest with yourself. Are you living wholeheartedly right now? And if not, what do you attribute that to? If you say, you know, I'm kind of half-hearted right now. What do you attribute that to? Because at least one implication of this psalm is that we cannot blame our circumstances for our half-heartedness. The psalmist was in terrible circumstances. He must have been tempted to despair or self-pity or just plain old grumbling and complaining. But instead, his testimony is that he is wholehearted. Now his heart is fully alive, fully engaged in walking in God's ways. How did that happen? I think the remaining verses, verses 70 to 72, reveal the key to how this transformation took place. Let's read all three verses, verse 70 to 72. Their heart, that that is the insolent, the enemies who he referred to in verse 69, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, first, I want to step step back from verse 70 to 72 and get you to notice the structure of the whole stanza. There's a symmetry between the first four verses in the stanza and the the last four verses in the stanza. The first four verses tell us about the goodness of God. But the third verse in that sequence gives us the crucial bit of information about how affliction played a key role in seeing this man move from going astray to walking in God's word. So the third verse was the crucial verse. Uh, the, The full four verses are about goodness. The third verse says, hey, Affliction is not incongruent with goodness. It actually serves the cause of goodness coming into your life and my life, okay? In the second four verses, he creates a contrast between the author himself and his enemies, 
Okay, but again, once we get to the third verse in the sequence, that's when affliction shows up again. And he says again that affliction played the decisive role for him. So there's a symmetry, and that impacts how we interpret this stanza. So what can we learn about how affliction made him different from his enemies? Well, let's start with his enemies. What, what do we know about them? First, in verse 69, they're, they're, insul- they're insolent. What does that mean? His insolent enemies. That means they're arrogant. They're presumptuous. Second, in verse 70, it says their heart is unfeeling like fat. So somehow their hearts are limited. Their hearts aren't operating on all cylinders. Their hearts are unfeeling. Their hearts are growing tough. They're getting hardened. They no longer have the ability to feel certain things. Okay, in 72, doesn't mention the enemies directly, but it draws a useful comparison between love for earthly goods, thousands of gold and silver pieces, versus love for God's word. Okay, you see the picture that's coming together here? He's saying his enemies' hearts have been dulled by the good things of this world. They've given themselves over to chasing the wrong good. And that's having an impact on their hearts. You can't do that and get away scot-free. There's a price to pay when you chase after things that your heart weren't made to chase after. The reference to fat in verse 70, it has a connotation of wealth and rich foods. Verse 72 mentions gold and silver. These are things that everyone thinks are good. And the author's not saying that wealth is bad in and of itself, but we know from Scripture that wealth is deceptive. We're tempted to look to wealth as an ultimate good. And when we do, our hearts start to shut down. In fact, when we look to anything in life as our ultimate good, it begins to dull our heart towards God. And that is a tragedy. That is a huge problem for us because he's already told us in verse 68 what the good is. You, God, are good. And you do good. But if we chase after the other things of this world, if we make them our ultimate good, our heart gets desensitized to God. But somehow, suffering and affliction have set the author's heart free from this particular temptation. It's actually in affliction that this man's heart came to life. Do you see the contrast? Their heart is unfeeling, but what's going on in his heart, the author's heart? Their heart is unfeeling, but I, I delight. His heart is fully functioning. He, he may be in the midst of affliction, but that affliction is causing his heart to wake up. It's having the opposite effect uh, of running after the riches and wealth and material things of this world. It's, it's bringing his heart to life. His heart is able to delight. But how did that happen? How does affliction do that for us? Well, let's take it one at a time. First, the, afflic- the, the enemies were arrogant. They think they know what's best for them. They're, they're not teachable students. They're not saying, God, please show me. Please show me what is really good. They think they already know what is good. They don't need anyone to tell them. They're arrogant. But the author, he's been humbled. The word affliction, it means brought low. It can be, it can be anything. When we, when we speak of affliction and suffering, I think typically our mind jumps to the worst case scenario, the, the absolute worst things. And God uses every form of affliction and suffering in these ways in our hearts to bring our hearts more fully alive to the goodness that we can't lose in the suffering of this world. But it, it could be anything that brings us low. It can be any struggle, trial, temptation, Difficulty, physical pain that brings us low, that that humbles us, that reminds us of our mortality, that reminds us that we don't have it all together, that reminds us that we do need someone to teach us what is good. Anything that humbles us can bring us low. Suffering has the power to humble us. Affliction has brought the author to a place where he's willing to re-examine what's most important about his life. He's teachable now. He's willing to learn something from God. Second, the enemy's hearts have been dulled or hardened by the deceitfulness of wealth. But affliction 
has done something in the author's heart. It's shaken the author's confidence in material things. Suffering has a way of loosening our grip on the material things of this world. I know many of you know this. It doesn't take much suffering. It does not take much pain to realize that wealth and material comfort cannot solve our biggest problems. We're good. (laughs) Material things, they can't meet our deepest needs, can they? Oh, I know that you know this. Intuitively, instinctively, we know this. And yet it's still so hard to stop ourselves from chasing after those things. Everything under the sun in this world, all the material things, they cannot make us wholehearted, fully engaged, alive people. Your hearts were created for something more than material things. And suffering has a way of helping us see that, of helping, us, of helping take that from an idea in our head to a lived experience. Suffering shows us that this world cannot satisfy. By God's grace, affliction can deprive us of the things that we thought we needed in order to live a full life, everything we thought we needed so we can live our best life, and it redirects our attention to the only one who can really satisfy. This is what the psalmist describes here, and I want you to look at the result. He's delighting. His heart is fully awake and delighting in God's law. He's able to say in verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. It is good. It is good. What would you give for that perspective? To know that there's something that's so good out there that no matter what could happen to you in this life, you could say, it's okay. It is well with my soul. It is good for me. Because what I'm tasting and experiencing in my relationship with my Heavenly Father through Jesus' blood is so good. And suffering can't even touch it. It can only enhance it. And look at this final line. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Brother or sister, did you walk in today with concerns about money? Did you walk in today worried about your finances? Did you walk in today obsessed with money? That thinking, how can I make my next dollar? What job can I get that's going to make it to where I can earn six figures, seven figures by next year? Are, do you lay awake at night thinking about how I can earn more money? Is the first thing you think of when you wake up about money? Oh, there is something that can set you free from that. There is something that is so much better than money. And money cannot protect us from the suffering in this life. If money is your greatest good, it will fail you. Whether sooner or later, it will not satisfy your soul. But the psalmist has found something that he says is so much better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Folks, I used to be a financial planner. The story of the financial planner is that you can achieve security and joy if you make the right decisions with your money. Don't listen. Don't listen. Yes, yes, make wise decisions with your money. Yes, it can't protect you from suffering. It can't satisfy your soul. It can't make your heart come fully alive. It cannot. If you put your hope in it, your heart will become dull to the things of God. The suffering this man endured, he had found something that was so valuable it made all the suffering worth it. He's able to honestly say it was good that he was afflicted. My friends, I want to invite you this afternoon, again, many of you have already tasted the goodness of God. For many of you, as you read this stanza of Psalm 119, it already resonates in your soul. You know that God is better than the things on offer in this world. But I want to invite you to press in, taste more, taste and see that the Lord is good. You cannot get enough of the experience of God's goodness. He is so good that when you experience it, as you experience more and more of it, you will look back on your trials and say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, I think, is a fitting way to sum up the text today. Paul writes this, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us 
an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's have the worship team come on up. How are you going to apply this text to your life today? The Bible is not an idle word. We know that from last week's sermon. We know that from our personal experience. The Bible is not just about giving you good information so that you can feel good about yourself for coming to church on a Sunday afternoon and hearing a sermon. No, the Bible is meant to redeem you. It it has a claim. It's a communication from your creator, the one who created you. He, He wrote a letter to you, and it places a claim on our life every time we hear it. The Bible is calling for change. So how... How are you going to apply this text to your life today? I have, two, I have two categories of people in mind. The first category are those of us who are either not suffering now, or perhaps we haven't faced much suffering in our life at all. And, and I want to encourage you to treat this text as a deposit a deposit for the future, a deposit that starts working in you now to prepare you for the days to come. And I have primarily two ways in mind that it can prepare us. The first thing is those of us who have not experienced, personally experienced much suffering, there's two ways we can go with that. We we can either start to become arrogant. We can believe that my life is going well because of me because I've made good decisions, because I'm a smart person, because I'm so obedient to God that he's just honoring all of my choices, and that's why I'm not experiencing suffering. No, no, friends, that is not the case. Sometimes we can start to look down on the people around us, lose compassion for the people who are suffering, because we think, you know, if they would just do it the way I do it, if they would just make smarter choices, they wouldn't be suffering as much. Do you hear who you're becoming? Do you hear yourself? If, if you've ever had thoughts like that, I'm not condemning you. I have had thoughts like that to my shame. But do you hear who we're becoming when we think like that? We're becoming like the enemies in this text, the insolent. We're becoming arrogant. We're becoming presumptuous. Let this text warn you. Let this text humble you. You, you are not currently in a good season of your life. You, you haven't, if you have largely avoided suffering thus far in your life, it is not because of you. It is because of one thing. It is because of God's grace. Let the text humble you. In some form or another, suffering in this life is inevitable. If you're putting your hope in yourself, if you're putting your hope in wealth, if you're putting your hope in friends, if you're putting your hope in money, Sooner or later, those things will falter, they will fail, they will crumble, and it will leave your heart dull. Let this text sober you. Now, I want the text to sober you because then it can set you free. The the other way we can go if we haven't experienced much much suffering is we can be wandering around with a cloud over our head playing the what-if game. We're just waiting We know the Bible talks a lot about suffering and affliction, and we're just saying, well, I know it's coming. I'm so worried about tomorrow. Uh, It's it's coming to get me, and I'm just playing, what if? What if? What if I get that diagnosis? What if that feeling here, this weird feeling that I felt last Monday, what if that's really something serious? Um, What if the market collapses and all my money goes away and all of a sudden I'm faced with poverty? What if? What if? What if? If that's you, if that's you today, I hope this text can set you free Uh, because the text should, it should humble us, okay? None of us can avoid suffering, but it it should also give you hope, right? Because yes, when that, when and if that suffering comes, when and if the what if game comes true, what this text is saying is God is so good. He tastes so good that the suffering is not going to be able to harm your greatest good. It cannot harm your greatest good. It cannot take away the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. So I hope that sets you free to enjoy the good things God has given you today. 
to walk out of here enjoying it, not afraid, not wasting all your energy being afraid now of the suffering that might come later. Secondly, and most importantly, for those of you who are currently in the midst of some form of suffering or affliction, I hope you can see that the psalmist doesn't take that lightly. The Bible, the Bible does not minimize or try to explain away our pain and suffering. The Bible is completely realistic about the pain and suffering that's possible in human life. What the Bible does, though, is it gives us someone who is bigger than suffering. The Bible leads us to our Savior. He's called the suffering servant for a reason. Jesus was willing to suffer to bring you to the Father. The greatest good that you can even imagine, the sweetest thing in your life, your relationship with God is only possible because our Savior was willing to walk through intense suffering. And he has defeated it, and he has redeemed it, and he has made it possible for you to find meaning and dignity and courage in the midst of what you're facing. But it does not make it easy. He offers you the chance to say, it's good. Not that it's easy, not that it's simple, that it's good. And I hope that if you are in some form, experiencing some form of affliction or suffering, that you can lift up your eyes, motivated and inspired by this psalmist's experience and say, Lord, show me. Let me taste and see. Please lift up my eyes off the, off the pain and let me taste and see more of your goodness. I know, Father, that your goodness can't be taken away from me, that this suffering cannot remove it from me. Let me taste it. Give me that perspective. God bless you if you're walking in suffering. Let's pray. Father, use this word in our hearts throughout the week, throughout the coming months. Lord, would you make us a deep and strong people? Would you please save us from wasting all our energy running after the things in this world that are not as good as your love? Will you delight us in your word? Lord, let us taste and see that you are good in a way that is deeper and stronger than we ever have before. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.